0: Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh's trusted, independent bookstore. My guest today is Michael Parker, the author of seven novels and three collections of stories. He is the recipient of Fellowships in Fiction from the North Carolina Arts Council and the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as the Hobson Award for Arts and Letters and the North Carolina Award for Literature. His most recent novel is Prairie Fever, published by the fine folks at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Michael, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah,
0: it's an honor to have you here. Now, readers and listeners, I would like to open this interview by stating that this novel, Prairie Fever, as we sit here on June 10th, is likely my best book of 2019 to date. I started reading it at LaGuardia as I was waiting on my flight back to Raleigh from Book Expo. And on the plane, I know that I alarmed my fellow passengers when I gasped very loudly as I was reading page 72. And I thought to myself, my God, here I have barely started this novel, and I'm very invested in these characters. Mm. And what a wonderful thing that is. It speaks to the quality of your writing, Michael, and to these characters that you have gifted us with, both human and Animal characters, and I want to thank you for writing this book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, my first question for you, Michael, is Do you have siblings?
1: I do actually. I have two sisters, um, the book is dedicated to them, mm-hmm. and I have two brothers. So, um, and I've actually written quite a few books about siblings, mm-hmm. um, but this is the first book that I've written about. Well, no, actually, that's not true. The Watery Part of the World was. Involved a pair two sisters as well, so mm-hmm. um, but i yeah, I'm very invested in my f- in family and writing about family mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and I ask you that question for an obvious reason to you and I, but our listeners may be unfamiliar. Um, would you like to take a moment before we proceed any further to set up this novel prairie fever
1: um sure, so this story well first of all t- I can tell you a little bit about where it came from. Mm-hmm. I never knew my grandmother on my mother's side, but the only she died before I was born, and the only thing I knew about her was this story that my mother used to tell about her and her sister growing up in Oklahoma, and in the winters, their mother would put them on the horse um, and pin blankets around them, all the way around them, so that they were completely covered um, from the snow and from the ice and from the wind and pat the horse, and the horse would take them to school. The teacher would unpin them and then do the same thing after school was out. So that was the only thing I knew about my grandmother. Um, I mean, I knew a couple of other things, but that was the thing that stuck with me, obviously. As a writer, an image like that is just like, you know, um, you can get 400 pages out of just that. Well, I did get Mm -hmm. 300 pages out of just that image, um, so the book explores the sisters relationship and also um, their relationship with, um, with the teacher that comes from North Carolina to Oklahoma um, who's sort of loosely based on my grandfather although he did not get involved with a pair of sisters I should <laughs> it, I should make that clear but he was um, he did go out to Oklahoma from North Carolina to uh, he was a minister and he was working with uh, um, Kiowa. Indians uh, on the reservation, and that's how he met my grandmother in Oklahoma. Um, so the book just follows the the two sisters and um, and this guy Gus, and I don't want to say too much more because I don't want to give too much away. But I do want to know what happened on page seventy two, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I can give that away if you don't <laughs> want to have any spoilers. My God, I can tell you after we uh after we pause the interview. And. I have a sister, also, and a couple of people that I'm not related to by blood, but that I consider brothers, and much of this novel as a result rang very true for me. Um, moving on, Michael, the characters in your novel, the three protagonists, Elise, Lorena, and Gus McQueen, are skilled at memorization. Elise and Lorena at memorizing stories from the local newspaper in the town where they are growing up, and Gus in the classroom, a skill that he eventually parlays into a job as a schoolteacher but as you write later in the novel, they are great at memorizing things, but not knowing what anything means. Can you talk about this concept?
1: Well, first of all, you're the first person that's ever pointed that out. Um, and it's interesting, because I hadn't thought about the ways in which Gus, you know, actually gets a job teaching because he's so good at memorizing the 100 counties of North Carolina, which we actually had to do. I grew up in Clinton, North Carolina, and I had a teacher, and I think it was the fourth grade, we studied North Carolina history, and that was one of the things we had to do. It's um, a p- particularly meaningless task, you know, but, but sort of good to know when you're driving around North Carolina. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, there's this, you know, there's sort of a roteness to education, but also I think the memorizing of the newspaper is sort of different because they're really invested in the stories as stories. Um, and they amuse themselves with um what seems like idle gossip, but it's really i mean I grew my father was a newspaper editor, and he had newspaper columnists that wrote crazy columns that from like real small towns in Sampson county, and we used to my brothers and sisters and I would read them, and we would read them aloud and just- you know think what in the world is that what's going on here like there's some story beneath the story always so Um, that was kind of what that was based on but also I got, uh, in writing this book, I got to read all these newspapers from that time period and the writing was terrific Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know USA Today Mm -hmm. or even the New York Times, I mean it's very colorful and it's sort of um, much more idiomatic and um, colloquial in a a poetic way, not in a um, ungrammatical um, slangy way, but in a kind of not literary, really, but just stylish way.
0: Thank you, Michael. And building off of this question a little, a theme in this novel, Prairie Fever, is that many of the characters who were employed as school teachers never quite finished their education themselves. Uh, Was this a sign of the times, a commentary on the state of the educational system, or both? Uh, Well, it was true that you didn't really
1: have to have gone to college or gotten a college degree to be a teacher. Um, I think Gus... I mean Gus just wanted to get away from North Carolina and from his circumstances he was living with his aunt and he was happy with her but it's but he felt you know neglected so I think he never had his heart in being a teacher and um, that's why you know he left teaching and um, who else is a teacher I'm trying to th- oh Lorena Lorena becomes a teacher and she becomes a teacher because she too is looking for a way out you know essentially I mean she takes the first, job that's offered to her after one year of college in Oklahoma and goes to Wyoming, which actually my great-aunt did, but she had finished her degree by then. So mm-hmm. There are a lot of school teachers in my family. My mom was a teacher. A lot of my aunts were teachers and uncles, yeah.
0: Thank you, Michael. And um, I'm going to read a quote that I pulled from later in your novel, and this is during a conversation where most every character that we meet is present and conversing. I believe Gus McQueen tells a story, and then following the story, you write, like a lot of things, it was both inconsiderate and honest. Why do you think that being honest is also oftentimes inconsiderate?
1: Uh, Yeah, he, um, I mean, there's a kind of cluelessness about him, I think, that allows him to be naively honest um, and clumsy, Mm -hmm. socially clumsy. Um, He doesn't quite think through, because he never had any... Cultural training um, note, you know, he was kind of neglected. But I mean, I think if you say what you feel, it can often be inconsiderate, and, but it can also be really honest. Mm-hmm. I have noticed that the great thing about getting older is that you care less and less about <laughs> what people think, so you can say things and people aren't really listening that much anyway, that closely. So, younger people. Um, I found that true with my students. I just retired after 28 Mm -hmm. years teaching. Congratulations. Thanks, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I mean, I loved my students, but they Mm -hmm. were, you know, they wanted to talk about video games. So Mm -hmm. if you don't know anything about video games, then you're not, you know, you're not culturally relevant in Mm -hmm. some ways, so. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, you you can piss people off being honest. Is it worth it is a question, Mm -hmm. you know. Who are you gonna alienate? What's the cost? You have to do a little cost-benefit analysis in your head, and every time you try to, well, I don't know, is that is this worth saying? There are people who are too honest, and I'm not really into that kind of thing. I mean, I guess it's my southern Calvinist upbringing. I'm like, I don't, not too much, just keep that to yourself, Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm.
0: So. Is honesty the best policy? I'll leave you with that, listeners, and we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and I'll be right back with Michael Parker. The Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from Booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L I B R O.fm, and enter Bookin, B O O K I N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I am back with Michael Parker, author of Prairie Fever, published by the fine folks at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Michael, I want to talk about creativity and the obsessions that can result from the creative drive. Elise, who is a very creative soul, is led to the brink of disaster by her quest to research a fact for a play she would like to act out in a barn with her sister. Why do you think the drive of the artistic soul to create so often leads to catastrophe?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot, I don't I's I tend not to want to generalize about artists because I f- I feel like once you do that, then you have to say, well, there are a lot of plumbers who are like this or that or the other. I mean, they are, you know, writers are not all alike nor are visual artists or dancers. But um, I do think uh, among the writers that I know, there is a high level of um, compulsiveness and obsession. And um, I think you need that to get the thing done and to get it right. Um, I mean, this first draft of this book was written in three weeks of virtually no sleep. I Mm. would sleep for a few hours in the afternoon and then I would write all night and then go for a run. I was in West Texas, a run down towards Mexico and come back and work some more and um, so so, you know I think some of that sort of spilled over into the book because it it was such a, um, it came in such a rush that I think the characters themselves were I was sort of projecting on them in the way that I've created the book that, that they were um, you know also obsessed but also think about Elise that she's quite obsessive in that she has this um, very visionary way of seeing the world and that she is not going to let anyone get in her way and uh, in the way that she interprets the world which gets her into trouble I mean and to, let's get back to the honesty and, and consideration point for a minute I mean a lot of people that have talked to me about this book have said, I don't, I mean, I really love Elise, but she's kind of, I mean, she really is quite dangerous in some ways. I mean, she gets everyone in trouble and bad things happen to her. And is it, is she a heroine or is she an anti-hero? I mean, I don't think about those things when I write, but I would like for her to be contradictory. And I think that she certainly is that and that you want, you want to pull for her. Um, but you also think, you know, don't do that. So sort of like, don't go in that door. Like, don't rifle through his mm-hmm. underwear. That's not good. You mm-hmm. <laughs> don't say mean things to your piano students, and don't go out, um, you know, in a snowstorm to try to find out the name of a l- saloon. That's just it, it kind of nuts. She's nutty. Mm-hmm. She's also kind of shoegazy. You know, what I mean, she's just like, she's, I don't know. I don't know if that works quite for her, but she's just very meditative in some ways. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Michael. And The next few questions are going to hint at some important things that happen later in the novel. So, listeners, I would like to give you a few seconds, if you are averse to spoilers, to pause this podcast and come back to it when you have finished the novel. You are picking up your phone and you are unlocking your screen, hopefully finding the pause button. A couple more seconds. All right, Michael. I want to talk some more about Gus McQueen. Gus seems to fall in love with whomever is present in a given moment. What I mean is, when Elise is in the hospital and he is unable to visit her, he falls in love with Lorena. And when Lorena goes away to college, he falls in love with Elise. What is it about Gus's character that makes this so? Is it youth? Is it an experience or something else?
1: Well, I think it's probably both of those things in his case, but it's also the fact that I think... There are different aspects of his personality that he's trying to honor um and when he's with Lorena, there's a more practical side of him that thinks this is a good probably a good match for me. you know she's smart, she's a teacher, she's beautiful um she's witty, and when he's with Elise, he thinks. What is she talking about? I really would like to know more about what it is that she's. What is this woman do, and What is this girl? If she was a girl then. What is she staring at? I think there's some connection. And I'm just sort of seeing this now. Actually, when you ask intelligent questions, I understand more about my book. Between the way that Elise is staring at him while he's telling the story about the Natchez Trace, and um. And his mother's habit of stopping and pausing and staring into space. And there's some mystery behind her. And I think he's always, I think we're always trying to sort of negotiate our um, involvement with, I mean, how much do we want to give ourselves over to mystery versus how much do we want to play it safe and stick with something that's, um, you know, a little bit more stable? And I think that's kind of what's going on with him. Um, I don't know that he falls in love with anyone else, but he does definitely fall in love with those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he sincerely loves both of them. I mean, I don't think he's, you know, oh, I wasn't really in love with Lorraine. I think he really was in love with Lorraine, but not to the extent that he was in love with Elise. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, Michael. My next question is about the dynamics of family relationships. As illustrated in Prairie Fever, one can be removed from family for years, decades even, and when reunited, old habits return and things buried resurface. Why do you think this is?
1: Well, I think we never grow up. Um, When we're in the presence of our family, you know, we cannot see each other for years and then we can fall right back into what happened um, when we were 14 and 15 and 16 and um, I certainly see that a lot with my family. In some ways, it's really comforting. I mean, um, you know, that you could, after all, these ti- all this time away, um, resume the same roles. On the other hand, it's maddening because you feel like, well, you know, I'm 60 years old and I'm acting like I'm 15 or I feel like I felt like when I was 15 and they made fun of me at the breakfast table. Um, but it is just this weird thing. It's this weird time warp thing um, that happens, you know. It's just I've been with my family a lot because we just lost both of our parents this year, so we've been spending lots of time together. There's a, there's a kind of sensibility that you share with your family, if you're lucky, that no one else has in the world, and um, you can be away from them for years. I remember one time... Talking to my brothers and sisters, and, and I wasn't really in touch with them. And we were spread out all over the country. Like, I was here in North Carolina, and my brother was in New Orleans, and um, my sister was in Seattle, and another brother was in Alaska, and my other sister was like in Africa or something. And we realized that we had all bought REM's first album mm-hmm. like the week that it came out, just mm-hmm. because we all have very similar taste in music, um, which I think is rare in a family. You know, usually there's like one person who's politically not uh, aligned with the rest of you or something, and I just, we've, we're all very um, of the same mind, we read the same books, and we're, um, we used to listen to the same music. I think I just kind of, I'd listen to music that's more contemporary than my siblings, but um, it's it's very comforting to have that sensibility and to be able to return to it at the same time that it's sort of alarming that you know it can be
0: alarming Mm -hmm. thank you michael and finally i want to ask you about southern door disease and southern door disease is what happens when you're visiting someone a friend or a family member and your visit has ended and you're saying goodbye and then you begin another conversation, and then another. And this moment of saying goodbye is actually when all the most important conversations are brought up. This happens again and again in your novel. Uh, can you talk to us about this concept a little?
1: Well, I didn't realize I was doing that, but I mean, I think that is absolutely true. Um, and it's one—it's a thing in real life that kind of drives me crazy. You know, I'm actually my friend Stuart Deschel calls me a split risk because we used to go to parties, and the first thing I would do is look for the back door. <laughs> Because if I got in a conversation that I felt like I couldn't get out of, I would just bolt. Um, but it is true that you know, after the pleasantries are exchanged and the goodbyes are said, then someone says something that is kind of can be revelatory, and that certainly does happen in this book. Like after people are trying to extricate themselves, and then then the truth comes out. It is actually true. I hadn't noticed that, but it's true. I I mean in real life as I said I'm more of a fan of what what we call the Irish goodbye which is just to walk out the <laughs> walk out the door and not really say goodbye to anyone because you know you're going to see him again which is considered rude I think in some circles to not say goodbye to the host but you know if the host is your brother or sister you know you're going to see him again
0: yeah Well, thank you very much, Michael. This novel, Prairie Fever, listeners, is one that you really need to come into Quail Ridge Books and purchase. Uh, We will have signed copies available. It is the best book of 2019 so far, as far as I am concerned. Michael, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it
0: once again i would like to thank michael parker for joining me signed copies of prairie fever can be purchased in store and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last if you're a writer who wants to explore your craft receive feedback on your work and make new writing friends without the pressure and expectations of a university writing program then check out the redbud writing project This new school offers in-person classes and workshops in short story writing, novel writing, memoir, submitting, publishing, and more at community locations in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Visit redbudwriting.org to learn more and sign up. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.